If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It was quite obvious that uh, you only needed to have one problem like that and the whole plan was going to start to go to pieces. And my God, it did go to pieces in every imaginable way. The British, I'm afraid, have this obsession about heroic failure and I'm afraid Arnhem sort of summed up heroic failure in no uncertain terms. That was Anthony Beaver talking about the disaster of Operation Market Garden. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Anthony Beaver, who's one of the world's best-known military historians and author of several acclaimed books on the Second World War, among them Stalingrad, Berlin, D-Day and Ardennes. His latest book, published today, the 17th of May, is Arnhem, The Battle for the Bridges, 1944. It tells the story of Operation Market Garden, where the Allies sought to punch through the German defences on the Western Front by landing airborne troops behind the lines in the Netherlands to prepare the way for their ground forces to advance. The success of the operation hinged partly on the capture of several bridges, most famously in the Dutch city of Arnhem, where some of the most ferocious fighting took place. Operation Market Garden was immortalised in the 1977 film A Bridge Too Far. But how close is the popular understanding of the events of 1944 to the military reality. I visited Anthony at his London home a few weeks ago to find out. And I started by asking him to describe the situation with the war in the West prior to the operation beginning. Yes, the attack out of Normandy was phenomenally successful. We had failed to cut off entirely the uh, armies in Normandy in the Falaise Gap, uh, and there was obviously a lot of debate about that. But even so, the German armies in France, and especially in Normandy, had been uh, really badly mauled, uh, and 
the advance from the River Seine uh, all the way through to Brussels in a matter of a couple of days, a few days, meant that actually there was victory euphoria in Allied headquarters. And this actually was the big danger. Uh, everybody thought that the war was going to be over in a matter of weeks, that there was going to be, it was going to be like August 1918, that the German army was collapsing and uh, it would all become very, very rapid. And this was a major miscalculation. It was underestimating the German power of recovery and, above all, the German ability to prioritise ruthlessly. And this is where General Field Marshal Model was put in command of uh, Army Group B up in the north, and he was the one who suddenly started to reorganise uh, the forces for the defence of the Netherlands. Because by the uh, 4th of September, uh, the British uh, had already occupied uh, Brussels. Then over the following week, they started advancing towards the Dutch border. And in Holland, I mean, there was euphoria because um, uh, on the 5th of September, which was uh, Dollar Dinsgag, which was known as the Crazy Tuesday, um, the Germans were in absolutely headlong retreat and in total chaos. They were stealing bicycles to get away to get back to the Reich. But at the same time, as some of the local Dutch observed, um, there was a movement in the other direction of, say, fresh troops arriving, even as the exhausted ones from France um, you know, trudged on their way and on these captured uh, vehicles and stolen bicycles uh, made their way towards Germany. But the British didn't really listen properly, I think, A, to the Dutch resistance, and uh, Montgomery always dismissed their information. And so did a lot of actually other British generals, partly because, for example, General Urquhart, who commanded the 1st Airborne Division at Arnhem, um, and others had had bad experiences when, whether the Italian resistance or the French resistance, had often come up with shall we say, over-optimistic scenarios or uh, versions of events. The Dutch underground was actually extremely professional and extremely reliable, and it was very frustrating for them not to be, not to be listened to. Anyway, the uh, situation came to such a point that Montgomery was desperate to get across the Rhine the first because he felt that uh, if he got across the Rhine, for the Americans and certainly before Bradley, his great rival to the south, then Eisenhower would be forced to give him the mass of the supplies, but also give him American formations under his command, because Montgomery felt that he should be the land forces commander, uh, that Eisenhower should just be a sort of president of the board as supreme commander and shouldn't interfere at all in any, any form of tactical or um, strategic decisions, really, on the fighting side. And uh, this, of course, created was already starting to create huge tensions between the, the British and the Americans, uh, which Eisenhower was doing his best to smooth over. Can you just give us a brief idea of what the plan was for Market Guard and what, what did the, the Allies intend to do with this operation? The problem had been that since uh, the invasion of Normandy in June 1944, one airborne operation after another had been planned to drop behind the German lines, to make a breakthrough in Normandy and all the rest of it. And some of these plans were absolutely crazy. I mean, they would have led to total disaster. And um, many of them had to be cancelled at the last moment, even when the troops were actually in the aircraft waiting to take off. So this created tremendous frustration and bitterness, particularly for the first airborne, because... It had been the six airborne who landed in uh, Normandy, as well as, of course, the American, two American airborne divisions, the 101st 
and the 82nd. So they had seen battle there, but the British First Airborne was suffering badly in that way. The organisation had changed at the beginning of August. Eisenhower had agreed to set up the first Allied Airborne Army, and this consisted of a uh, headquarters in Britain, commanded by an American Air Force general, General Lewis Brereton, and under him he had two corps. One of them was an American corps, um, the 18th Airborne Corps, and the British had the 1st British Airborne Corps, commanded by General Boy Browning. The trouble was that Boy Browning, although a brave officer in the uh, First World War, had not seen action in the Second World War because he'd been based in England the whole time. On the other hand, the uh, American commander, Ridgway, had seen action both in North Africa, in the invasion of Sicily, and, of course, in um, Normandy. But so as to sort of balance the Allied basis between the British and the Americans, Browning was made the second-in-command of the Allied Airborne Army, and he was therefore the one who was going to command the Airborne Corps for the Operation Market Garden. Now, the trouble was that they'd once again tried several other different plans beforehand, all of which were cancelled. And then Montgomery got this idea that if he could get across the Rhine at Arnhem, and he would therefore be in sort of pole position to take over. So he uh, was given the support of the First Allied Airborne Army by Eisenhower. And he, to begin with, just ordered a, uh, an initial operation uh, which is going to be called Operation Comet, with just one British airborne division and the Poles. Uh, and this actually was ludicrously ambitious to try to achieve everything which was then attempted in Market Garden and failed, but with just one and a half airborne divisions. So when he realised that this was not strong enough and uh, he'd been warned, he then uh, changed it by bringing in the two American divisions. And on the 10th of September, he had this meeting with Eisenhower in Brussels airport, and basically Eisenhower gave him the go-ahead without actually knowing any details of the plan. And the rough idea was sketched out in a matter of a couple of hours between General Browning for the 1st Airborne Corps and General Dempsey commanding the 2nd British Army. And Browning flew back to England, warned the people at Brereton's headquarters that um, there was to be a briefing that night, and he told them the outline sketch of the plan that he'd cooked up with uh, General Dempsey. The trouble was that they never um, consulted the airborne side. Now, right from the start, within the British side, it was agreed after the chaos of the airborne operations in Sicily and also in North, uh, northern France, um, that the air side was to have planning priority. And um, Montgomery thought that the Air Force people, he thought they were gutless buggers, as he described uh, Lee Mallory, because he felt that they were far too windy and scared. And he said, this time round, I'm going to impose my plan on them. And so Browning arrived on the evening of the 10th of September to brief everybody there, and he told them what the outline plan was. But he had based everything on previous plans. Now, by then, we were already getting into mid-September, so the days were shorter. Also, the advance meant that the distance away from the airfields in Britain meant that actually they couldn't do two lifts in a day. And this was the basic flaw in the whole plan, was that they could only deliver 
the equivalent of uh, at maximum half a division on the first day, not even that in most cases. And uh, it meant that they did not have sufficient forces to achieve what they needed to achieve. And then in the case of the British, that they were going to be dropped way outside Arnhem, well out to the west, the northwest of Arnhem, um, and over seven to eight miles away from their target, which meant that the one advantage of airborne troops, which was surprise, was going to be lost the moment they landed. And um, this was one of the fundamental flaws, one of many fundamental flaws. Now, the real responsibility, actually, in a way, lay uh, obviously with Montgomery for refusing to consult the uh, air side, uh, but also with Browning, who, when he had told his, given his uh, version of the plan at that particular conference, then heard from the American Air Force people, uh, well, there's no way we can deliver that lot of people in the first day. And also, we're not going to go near any of the bridges, so you can't have the coup de main forces dropping by glider like at Pegasus Bridge. And you're, in fact, going to have to drop way outside Arnhem. Now, he should have gone straight back to Montgomery and said, it's not on, we've got to revise, we've got to uh, reassess the whole plan. But basically, I'm afraid vanity plays a large part. And Browning was so determined that he should command the Corps in war. And they thought the, the war was going to be over in a matter of this was going to be his last chance. So I'm afraid there was a lot of personal, shall I say, personal pride uh, involved in deciding on this basically disastrous operation. And so the plan was that... You had Market, which was where these airborne troops were going to be dropped behind the lines, and then the the, the second part, Garden, was land forces were supposed to then power through and meet up with them. Was that plan at all feasible? Well, I totally disagree with a number of the historians beforehand who've all tried to make out that sort of if only this or if only that, it would have been a resounding success. I didn't think it could have ever worked. You're absolutely right. I mean, the whole idea was to, from the Neapelt bridgehead on the... Dutch-Belgian uh, border, it, it was for 30 corps led by the Guards Armoured Division to charge up this single road via Eindhoven, Nijmegen, all the way to Arnhem. I mean, that was 64 miles, an advance of 64 miles, which they were supposed to do within about two and a half to three days. Um, which would be fine if, you know, <laughs> assuming none of the bridges were blown. You've only got to look at the huge bridge, the biggest bridge in Europe over the River Waal, at Nijmegen, if the Germans had blown that as they should have done, there was no way they would have ever got to Arnhem on time. The fact that they didn't blow that bridge was purely a very uncharacteristic decision by General Field Marshal Myrtle, uh, who actually believed that they could uh, launch a counterattack and that he needed the bridge to get back across over. Uh, he felt, I think, also that Führer headquarters would be furious if the bridge was blown, uh, because basically that would be conceding all the all the ground right up to uh, the Rhine, the Waal, rather, um, and um, sort of the loss of that territory of southern Holland. So they decided not to blow that bridge, uh, even though his uh, uh, the generals underneath him were all begging him to blow it. Uh, now, if that had gone, I mean, there is absolutely no way that they would have ever been able to bridge that, i.e. even with a pontoon bridge, it was very fast flowing, the river there, and it was extremely wide. Um, you know, there was no way that they would have got to Arnhem in time. So the whole idea of, you know, the second army led by 30 Corps, led by the Guards Armour Division, was somehow going to power through, was all based on the false assumption that the German army had collapsed, and that was not the case. So you talk a lot about the element of surprise being lost. At what point 
did the Germans realise what was happening and how quick were they able to respond to the paratroops landing? Well, there have been various conspiracy theories in the past, I think all of which have been shot down. I mean, particularly the whole story about King Kong, who was this uh, member of the Dutch resistance who went rogue um, and who was working for the Germans. And uh, to what degree, you know, they were informed in advance. I mean, one's only got to read all the German accounts in the archives in Freiburg uh, to see straight away that the Germans were totally taken by surprise. One or two people had expected an airborne operation, but funnily enough, they thought it was going to be an airborne operation combined with a sea landing on the Dutch coast, rather as had happened in Normandy. In the case of uh, Market Garden, um, they also thought that the whole idea of dropping paratroops all the way up this particular line was an operation which General Montgomery, sorry, Field Marshal Montgomery just by then, would never contemplate because he was so cautious. So they never uh, considered that one a possibility. But once they knew where the paratroopers were dropping, when they knew that the Americans had dropped at Eindhoven and Nijmegen and the British at Arnhem, it was obvious what the plan was. So although there was a tremendous uh, uh, to-do, General Oberst Student, who commanded the parachute army, was thrilled when they captured all the plans, whereas one officer who'd taken them into battle with him and uh, his uh, uh, glider was shot down. So, I mean, within a matter of hours, they had the detailed plans for the whole uh, operation. But actually, you know, they'd already worked out exactly what the plan was simply by just looking at the map and seeing where paratroopers were dropping um, and um, what the objective was. So, no, the Germans were not in any way aware of it in advance. They were completely surprised. Um, General Field Marshal Mödel, who was sitting down to lunch in the Tafelberg Hotel in uh, Ustebjerg, thought that all of these uh, airborne troops, which they suddenly saw dropping uh, only about three, two or three kilometres away, he was convinced that actually it was a, uh, an operation to capture him and that their position. But that was a wonderful piece of uh, self-centred um, amour prop, right? I think. And uh, in fact, I think one or two of his uh, officers were uh, were quite amused by this uh, idea. And Hitler, in fact, when he heard about it, was absolutely certain that this was the case. And he immediately started ordering reinforcements for the Wolfschanzer in East Prussia, uh, because he was afraid that what happens if, you know, the Red Army um, dropped paratroops all around the uh, Wolf's Lair in uh, near Rastenburg and tried to capture me. I mean, Hitler's great fear was, of course, being taken alive uh, and being taken back in an iron cage to Moscow. So the British airborne, they're the ones who actually land at Arnhem, or, well, not at Arnhem, but near Arnhem. Yeah. And one of the key factors of the upcoming battle was the bridge at Arnhem. Mm-hmm. How close did they get to capturing and holding that bridge? Well, the bad luck, and I mean, obviously, war is a question of good luck and bad luck. In fact, uh, when... General Horrocks gave his briefing at Burg Leopold. Uh, There were Dutch officers present who said that um, Napoleon always used to say uh, that providing, you know, you've got 75% chance in your favour, you can take a risk on the remaining 25%. And the Dutch officers immediately observed when they heard the plan of Marky Garden, they said, this is the other way around. I mean, you know, it's, it's at least three quarters uh, against our favour of actually, the thing succeeding. But anyway, the um, whole question of the landings and um, the way that the whole thing was uh, was planned was bound to lead to a certain amount of 
chaos, partly because of being, uh, as I was saying, so far away from the bridge. The bad luck in this particular case uh, came because there was a purely one training battalion, a replacement and training battalion of SS, commanded by a character called Sepp Kraft, and they happened to be in the woods, very close to where the landing was taking place. And Kraft, I think, quite correctly, I mean, one has always got to be careful about people changing their version of events after the war, uh, but I think it's quite clear that Kraft realised that um, they must be going for the bridge. And so he spread out his troops to cover the two main routes into Arnhem. But he didn't manage to, he didn't have enough troops, really, to cover the uh, route going along the river or closest to the river. And that's the only reason why one of the battalions, Colonel John Frost's 2nd Battalion, uh, managed to slip through to the northern end of the bridge. I mean, again, I think it underlines the question. I mean, there's an old, the old British Army saying, very, very simple, you know, that uh, the whole question of friction of war and all the rest of it, and, and that is that uh, no plan survives contact with the enemy. And it was quite obvious that uh, you only needed to have one problem like that, and the whole plan was going to start to go to pieces. And, my God, it did go to pieces in every imaginable way. I mean, on the very first day, you started the communications breakdown. The, even those signals officers had warned that the 22 set was probably not going to be powerful enough because the headquarters was going to be so spread out from the troops going all the way into Arnhem. I mean, over a question of seven or eight miles with a town and with trees and um, woods in between, there was no guarantee of it working. Of course, that's what they found. So uh, no communications. You then have the general, Urquhart, desperate to find out what was going on, goes forward, then gets cut off from his headquarters. He then gets cut off with the brigadier commanding the 1st Parachute Brigade, uh, which is the one first lot trying to get into Arnhem. So, I mean, everything starts to go to pieces very, very rapidly because it was a bad plan right from the start and right from the top. Well, you've got Allied troops landing, American and, and British um, airborne troops landing. What's the, the fate of the, the land troops? Because they needed to meet up with them. Did, did they get anywhere close to where the, the airborne troops were? The Irish Guards were the first ones to lead. This was a battalion of um, an armoured battalion. You had a, one which was infantry um, or motorised infantry and you had the armoured battalion and they were the ones commanded by Colonel Joe Vandeleur who were going to lead the punch through. Well, as soon as they had crossed the border, which was only sort of a few hundred yards away from their start line, German anti-tank guns concealed in small woods either side on the uh, polder were firing straight at them. Nine tanks were knocked out in the first few minutes. Fortunately, Van der Leer had a uh, dozer tank uh, fairly far forward, purely because he'd heard that they might have created a ditch across the road at some particular point. But anyway, the dozer tank was able to push the blazing uh, Shermans off the road. And, you know, from that point of view, A, the losses, uh, they were rather shaken at this, but um, they should have realised, I mean, that they were going to be ambushed at every opportunity along that particular road. So when they got to Valkensvard, which was the first village up the road, um, they decided to spend the night there. Now, they were supposed to be in Eindhoven that first evening. And the reason why they stopped in Valkensvard was it was not van der Leer's fault or the Irish Guard's fault. The order came from above, basically, that because they just heard over the radio that the bridge at Son which was a bridge just north of Eindhoven, had been blown up. Time was going to be needed to repair that bridge. 
So they spent the night there, and then they had, as van der Leer says in one of his interviews after the, um, just after the war, says, oh, we had a very leisurely start the next day. Well, I mean, the whole point was that the bridging equipment and the Royal Engineers were in the column behind them. So, in fact, it was all the more reason to push forward rapidly and through the night when they would have actually faced far less trouble from German anti-tank guns. I mean, if they just gone charging down that road. But this was order coming down from the brigade commander and from Horrocks, who thoroughly supported their idea that they should spend the night there. When, of course, the American paratroopers, who had taken Son, but the bridge had been blown up in their faces, they didn't have the facilities to repair the bridge, certainly not to uh, take tanks over it. So there was a total confusion of thought, even at that particular point. As a result, they were nearly 36 hours behind schedule by the time they got to Eindhoven, which they were supposed to have reached on the very first evening. Then things speeded up much more. I mean, the engineers did a fantastic job building a, a Bailey Bridge across the river at Son that night. And, and then the next morning, 30 Corps and the Guards uh, Armoured Division charged on forwards and got to the edge of Nijmegen sort of the following, the following evening. But the trouble was that at Nijmegen, the Americans had not captured the bridge. And this was partly, again, I don't know to what degree it's Browning's fault. It's interesting reading Brigadier General Jim Gavin's uh, diaries and everything. He obviously is rather defensive because he was criticised, I think, after the war implicitly. I mean, he was a great hero. Everybody admired him enormously. But Gavin had accepted what Browning had told him, which was the real threat comes from our flank. It comes from the Reichswald. This is the huge forest on the German-Dutch border uh, just, to the, uh, just to the southeast of Nijmegen. Because he said if um, the Germans who we think are in the forest, actually there weren't that many, seize the high ground of the Hushbeck Heights, they can then shell the uh, bridges which 30 Corps needs to come across and that will wreck the whole operation. So that's your number one priority. Now, whether that was the correct priority, whether he should have put more troops into trying to capture that bridge on the first night, again, you know, is a, a debate we can have. He did send in one battalion, but the battalion commander didn't do what he was told and it was a disaster and they had to pull back out again. So the trouble was that the guards armoured arrived thinking that they were just going to trundle straight across the bridge at Nijmegen and then carry on up the road to Arnhem, found a very, very different situation and they had to fight their way into uh, Nijmegen. Even that didn't work. And they had to start again the next day and then gradually clear the town block by block with a, a troop of Shermans uh, attached to every company of either American paratroopers or to Grenadier Guards infantry. And eventually they did manage to clear a lot of the town, by which time the SS who had arrived and were holding the bridge and defending it had been using arson as a weapon of war and setting fire to all the houses and a whole area. I mean, the people of Nijmegen suffered appallingly as a result. So while this was going on, while the land troops were taking a lot longer than expected, what was the situation for the British airborne in Arnhem? Well, Frost's guys were defending. He had a, a, a mixed force, which was basically partly his own battalion, but also other odds and bods and sappers, airborne sappers and others who were part of the brigade headquarters attached with him. But he had getting on for about 700 men at the bridge at the beginning. But their losses mounted very, very rapidly because, needless to say, the Germans, once they had realised that the British had slipped through on that very first evening, were appalled. Again, orders hadn't been followed and Gruppenführer Bittrich, who was the um, corps commander of the 2nd SS Panzer Corps, was appalled when he found that the reconnaissance uh, battalion 
of the SS, 9th SS Hohenstaufen, had crossed the bridge, charged towards Nijmegen, but hadn't left any forces to defend the bridge. And that's what gave Frost, his boys, the chance of not taking the whole bridge, but at least capturing the northern end of it. So massive counterattack the next morning. And actually, that was sort of a battle basically won by the British at the bridge because the reconnaissance battalion was more or less massacred. The paratroopers had six-pounder anti-tank guns. They had uh, anti-tank grenade launchers and uh, so forth. And there was, I say, a massacre on the bridge. I mean, most of the vehicles caught fire. Guys were burnt to pieces. I mean, it was a really nasty, nasty battle in that particular way. But, I mean, as far as the 2nd Battalion was concerned, you know, there was sort of huge triumph at what they achieved in that particular one. And the brigade battle cry from North Africa was Wur Mohammed, and that sort of rang out uh, at the end when it was obvious that uh, they had killed far, far more of the Germans than losses that they had suffered themselves. But then over the following days, as the German forces started to arrive, then they began to suffer in a big way. Within literally um, the afternoon of the very first day of the 17th of September, Myrtle had already shifted headquarters. He'd escaped from Tafelberg in time, moved to the headquarters of the 2nd SS Panzer and was already ordering in troops from all over Germany. The Germans were brilliant at the way that they were put together scratch units, Alarm Einheiten, who would be ordered in, marching to the sound of gunfire. I mean, this was a sort of old thing of Frederick the Great and the Prussians, you know, march towards the sound of gunfire. And they were also bringing in tanks from all over Germany. Now, there was always been a bit of a myth about Arnhem. One of many myths about Arnhem was that the two panzer divisions in the region, in the area, the 9th and the 10th SS panzer divisions, um, had lots of Tiger tanks. Absolute rubbish. They only had three serviceable tanks between the two divisions. The tanks were arriving because Myrtle had sent out orders for blitz transport, which meant basically that within a matter of hours during the course of that first evening, tanks were being put onto trains and given total priority on the Reichsbahn system. And they were starting to arrive in Arnhem or close to Arnhem, by the next morning. And this is when the 1st Brigade and, um, above all, the 2nd Battalion at the bridge starting to find themselves up against fairly heavy armour. But also guns, um, artillery guns were being brought in and they were just using them to demolish the houses bit by bit, shooting them to pieces around their ears. After the the initial paratroop landing, there were further lands. And I'd be interested to know your thoughts about the Polish, large number of Polish paratroops landed. Why was it that they weren't then able to help the British? Again, it was a very bad plan. The trouble was that poor Urquhart had basically had his landing zones and drop zones decided for him by the American Air Force, basically. They're saying, we're not going to drop you anywhere near the bridge. It's too dangerous, too many flat guns. Also, to the north of Arnhem, there is the Luftwaffe airfield of Dielen, which has also got flat guns. Um, So that's why we're going to have to drop you out to the west. The problem was that because only a small proportion of the division was coming in on the first day, there had to be subsequent drops. So the subsequent drops were actually also well out to the west of Arnhem. And it meant that, in fact, Urquhart had had to leave behind half of his force simply to defend the landing zones. So only one brigade had actually been sent into Arnhem at the beginning. When they started to come, uh, by then the Germans could work out where the landing zones and drop zones were, so they were moving all of their anti-aircraft guns in towards them. 
the Poles to General Sosobowski, who commanded the Polish Independent Parachute Brigade, to his fury, the uh, Polish anti-tank guns were sent in on the second lift, while his brigade was going to be dropped south of the river. And he said, he said right in advance, and he was the most outspoken critic of the whole plan. He told Browning on several occasions why it was such a bad plan. The very fact that his brigade was going to be dropped without their anti-tank guns. What was going to happen if they suddenly found themselves dropping amidst uh, panzer troops? But he was told, oh, don't worry, we'll have captured the bridges by then. Well, of course, they hadn't captured the bridges. They weren't able to get capture the ferry. That had been destroyed by the Germans. So when finally the uh, Poles arrived, the main force of Poles arrived, uh, they were dropped south of the river, but in a different place because uh, they couldn't be dropped where it had been planned, close to the bridge. And in fact, they were without their anti-tank guns. Um, They had no means of crossing over to the other side. So, I mean, the whole thing was a total mess from that point of view. And um, again, based on false assumptions um, in, in, in the planning process. Sosobolsky, having been so outspoken and having warned uh, Browning and Urquhart, you know, that uh, uh, they were going into a a suicidal mission, I think he actually then persuaded Urquhart, because actually Urquhart, and this I had never come across before, but there was the evidence I found in one of the American archives, there was the evidence of uh, Captain uh, Eddie Newbury, who was Browning's aide, he wasn't his ADC, but he was his aide, who was in the office uh, just a couple of days before the operation was launched, when General Urquhart came in um, to Browning's office, saluted, and said, sir, you've uh, ordered me to carry out the planning, and I've done it as you've told me, but I have to warn you, I think it's going to be a suicide operation. Now, Urquhart never really wanted to rock the boat. I mean, he was a very brave man, he was a very loyal man, um, and I think everybody admired him. Um, But he was not the sort of man to cause a fuss. But he certainly was prepared to tell Browning that they were making a huge mistake uh, in this particular way. And afterwards, he never really spoke out, even in his book on Arnhem. He never mentioned what he'd said to Browning beforehand, because by then, the great Arnhem myth had had to be developed, that somehow it wasn't all in vain. The British, I'm afraid, have this obsession about heroic failure. And I'm afraid Arnhem sort of summed up heroic failure in no uncertain terms. And Urquhart did not want afterwards to upset the families of those who'd lost loved ones at Arnhem, quite rightly in many ways, by saying, frankly, we should never have done it. He basically sort of, you know, soldiered on very loyally and all the rest of it and didn't criticise Montgomery or uh, Browning, but my God, he would have been justified. But no, it was, I think, a tragic mistake. And one of the most shameful things was the way that the Poles and above all General Sosobowski were treated by Browning afterwards. I think that was totally outrageous. And it's still a major, major cause of anger and unhappiness in Poland to this day. The way that Sosobowski was basically uh, forced out of his command of the Polish Parachute Brigade, which he had created right from the start, uh, by Browning, who tried to imply afterwards that uh, Kozabowski had been uh, sort of not so much cowardly, but he had tried to save his own men from battle by not crossing over the Rhine to uh, join the airborne. Well, I mean, he wasn't given the right sort of boat 
boats. Then you had dinghies, little sort of um, our sea rescue dinghies and things to cross over. The boats were no good. And then uh, when it came to it, he was told to hand over his boats to uh, the British brigade, which had finally arrived there towards the end. But, I mean, he was then basically uh, portrayed by Montgomery and Browning as somebody who was just awkward, difficult and um, hadn't followed orders. But actually what they could not forgive him for was having been absolutely correct in all of his predictions about uh, the disastrous operation. One thing Allies did, in theory, have going for them was their aerial superiority. Were they able to make much use of that in supporting the troops at Arnhem? No, not at all, I'm afraid, due to the wireless difficulties. Now, it's a matter of debate still, you know, in RAF circles and so forth, why um, the VHF links and all the rest of it weren't working. I mean, what's interesting is that there were two separate American wireless teams at Arnhem with the British. I hadn't realised that before, I must say. And the officers with them wrote very interesting reports, which one can find in, in the American archives. I mean, they couldn't have been more, more full of praise for the bravery of the British at Arnhem and all the rest of it. But they were appalled to find that they didn't even have the, the right frequencies to contact the aircraft. So not only could they not contact the transport aircraft to say, you mustn't go on dropping supplies because they're going straight to the Germans, because they, they couldn't even tell the RAF that they were no longer holding the area of the drop zones which had been allocated for the resupply of the original troops. Ditto when it came to any question of air support from either fighters or fighter bombers. Um, it was only in the last two days that suddenly rocket-firing typhoons appeared over and started hitting German targets. So I'm afraid, you know, the Allied air superiority was um, basically did not play a part during the crucial aspect of the battle. It was excellent on the very first day when the Irish Guards were advancing, but then um, either it was a question of weather or um, various other priorities, whatever it might be, you know, the RAF was simply not there to do it or they were not able to carry out the missions they were given. And that, as you might imagine, also caused quite a lot of tension and uh, anger. For the, the, the soldiers fighting in places such as Arnhem and Nijmegen, what was the, the nature of the combat there? How did it compare to some of the other operations such as Normandy or potentially what was going on the Eastern Front? Well, they were very different in the sense that we're talking basically about urban warfare, I mean, about um, street fighting, house fighting, house-to-house fighting. There are differences in a way. I mean, the, the final battle was around sort of Ustabiek, where, where this was much more, as I said, slightly suburban. I mean, it was, Ustabiek was a very pretty large village with nice country houses or uh, in large gardens. But, I mean, basically, it was still house-to-house fighting there. Uh, Nijmegen, it was completely sort of street fighting um, in a very vicious sort because uh, the SS were prepared to, you know, they were setting fire to all the houses, as I mentioned, and, uh, and basically they were having to clear street by street, block by block, uh, before they could get close enough to the bridge and before they could launch the attack across the River Val by the American uh, paratroopers, Major Cook's battalion. It was quite funny in the American archives. I came across a letter from Major Cook uh, complaining about the movie A Bridge Too Far, 
And he was complaining bitterly about being portrayed by Robert Redford and the way that he was portrayed. And um, I think probably most men would have been rather flattered to be portrayed by Robert Redford. But anyway, uh, Major Cook, Julian Cook, who was incredibly brave and showed extraordinary leadership. I mean, it was one of the most, probably one of the most sort of heroic episodes of the whole of the Second World War of crossing the Vaal under fire, under heavy fire, in these little canvas assault boats and then sweeping the Germans. I mean, so many of them were lost on the way over and uh, chopped to pieces. And Dutch civilians climbed out into the river to pull in the wounded and the, and the dead sort of further downstream. I mean, it was, it was, it was an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, brave and disastrous but successful attack. Um, and then, I'm afraid, was followed by an absolute massacre afterwards because they, they literally killed all of the German prisoners who were surrendering or whatever. I mean, they were, they were so fired up. It's an extraordinary thing to describe and to have the accounts of various Americans there who had been paralysed with fear almost as they were crossing the river. But the moment they got to the other side, you had this sort of surge of basically sort of killer instinct and... A feeling, a feeling of completely of total invincibility as they charge forwards, and there was a uh, a guards officer who was watching who said, "I think those paratroopers must be fed on either dynamite or raw meat," <laughs> and it was, um, but it was not a pretty sight. I mean, the killing the killing of the prisoners and uh, anybody was was pretty horrific. But um, that was one side of the aspect. But the actual fighting in Nijmegen, as the fighting in Arnhem, was absolutely merciless. And it was sort of, most of it, at very, very close, close range in houses and streets. And so you talked there about an episode where prisoners were killed. But in general, in Market Garden, how did the two sides treat each other? How closely were the rules of war followed? Well, interestingly, um, not so much in Nijmegen, but certainly in Arnhem and sort of Oosterbeek, the Waffen-SS tried to sort of prove how gentlemanly they were, Ritterlich. And um, on the whole, they did tend to respect the rules of war. Not always. I mean, quite often they were firing at hospitals, even though there were red signs up and uh, red crosses. And quite often there were numbers of them who would shoot down aid men or medics because they knew that actually that was the way really to hit morale. And that's why medics were so incredibly brave. Some of them said the last thing I'd ever wear would be a, a Red Cross armband because you knew the enemy would use that as an aiming mark. But it was a mixture. But on the whole, the SS certainly prided themselves on the way that they behaved at Arnhem. And it was quite interesting that afterwards, the uh, commander of one of the SS divisions, of an SS divisions just after the war, wrote to Urquhart, asking for a confirmation, a letter back from him, confirmation of how well and how gentlemanly the SS had behaved at a time when, of course, the SS had been condemned as a criminal organisation and all the rest of it. But Urquhart, not surprisingly, didn't actually uh, reply to this particular uh, request. So that does show that the SS behaved very differently here against the British than they had done in, say, the Eastern Front against the Russians. Absolutely. So there was a racial dimension to this or an ethnic dimension. Oh, yes, oh, yes. And, I mean, you know, I was fascinated in the book. I put in a conversation between a padre and one of the SS, and he asked the SS, you know, uh, why do you hate the Jews? And, you know, back came the reply, because they're Jews. And uh, why do you hate the Russians? So, and the man looks at him pityingly, saying, if you'd ever see the Russians, you'd know why. No, I mean, as far as they were concerned, it was visceral and interesting to see how, as far as they were concerned, fighting on the Eastern Front and the Western Front were two totally different wars. But at the same time, you know, they were the first to acknowledge that the fighting in Arnhem and the fighting in Ushabi was 
as savage, if not even more savage, than a lot of the fighting on the Eastern Front. There was perhaps sort of, shall we say, greater cruelty on the Eastern Front, an even far greater killing of prisoners there. But it, it was definitely a question of attitude, both between the Allied side and the Germans. I mean, it must be said that the uh, Americans, particularly the American paratroopers, did tend to kill prisoners that much more. And in fact, quite often, orders had to go out saying, listen, um, you know, they're even offering paid weekends to Paris and uh, leave back to England just to bring in a German prisoner because all the prisoners were being shot and they needed some for interrogation. That's that bad. And I mean... um, Colonel Christofferson of the Sherwood Rangers, which was an armoured regiment supporting the 82nd Airborne, uh, records in his diary how shocked he was seeing American paratroopers driving around with a a metal stake on the front of their jeep with a a German head severed stuck on the the jeep. Uh, And he said, you know, um, as much as I admired and liked these paratroopers, um, he said, I still have nightmares remembering just that image. Obviously, this fighting is not taking place in either... Allied or, you know, German territory. This is taking place in in Holland. So what happened to all the Dutch people who were living in these various cities? How were they caught up in the fighting? Well, the Dutch, right from the start, had been asked by the British and by their own government, in a way, to help, not by taking up arms, but by, A, impeding German reinforcements, and especially the Dutch railway network. All of the railwaymen went on strike, Now, when paratroopers landed, immediately farmers would turn up with their carts and horses to load up bundles to help transport them. I mean, because the one thing, of course, which, uh, apart from a few jeeps coming out of gliders and all the rest of it, uh, the one thing they lacked was transport and heavy weapons and the ability to transport artillery, ammunition, and all the rest of it. So, I mean, the Dutch did everything they could to help. They had had a a brutal occupation over more than four years, over four years of occupation. They had been hated by the Germans because the Germans had expected the Dutch as sort of, you know, almost racial brothers to want to join the um, the Reich. I mean, there were even plans that sort of, um, that, that the Netherlands should be incorporated into the German Reich. Um, and the, there's always this extraordinary confusion of German cause and effect. You know, there were the Germans who had invaded a neutral country, occupied it in a very brutal fashion, um, and then were furious when the Dutch wanted to support the Allies, as if this was treason. And, A, of course, they wanted to shoot anybody who helped the Allies, which they certainly did, even boys. I mean, as soon as they found anybody with an orange armband, you know, they would just literally grab them, shoot them on the spot. And also, you know, the uh, civilians as a whole who uh, did everything they could by even providing food to the Allies when they were running short of rations, by doing everything they possibly could. Uh, They would come out from the villages and offer to dig trenches for the uh, soldiers and so forth. Uh, Children were queuing up to do everything they could to help. So the German anger was, shall I say, rather twisted in its logic. But my God, it was intense. And so they decided to take revenge, and that meant blowing up the ports of Rotterdam, of Amsterdam, um, and then, when it came after the battle, of sealing off the northern Holland and preventing food going to the cities. 
the whole population of the north bank of the Nederin, the, the Rhine, of Arnhem, Ustabeg, all around there, uh, they were forced out of their houses. Their houses were comprehensively looted and then set on fire and destroyed in many ways. Arnhem was absolutely wrecked. A really beautiful city um, was totally wrecked. It was part of, part of this sort of uh, policy of um, revenge measures against the civil population. I mean, that's what they were called. And then you had the Hunger Winter, where it even got to the stage of um, German soldiers boasting and this you can find in the British archives from the, uh, those secretly taped conversations of, uh, of German officers, of uh, uh, Germans boasting they didn't really need to go to brothels anymore or whatever because for half a loaf of bread they could get any Dutch girl to do whatever they wanted. Hardly surprising the anger, the bitterness of the Dutch to it. And of course, you know, there was quite a bit of bitterness, frankly, towards the Allies for having launched Operation Market Garden, which was such a, in the end, an incompetent and badly planned operation. Um, but there was extraordinary forgiveness too, not only forgiveness for the other things which the Allies had done, whether it was the mistaken bombing of Nijmegen a little bit earlier on by the Americans, uh, the disaster of British SOE in the way that the Dutch uh, resistance officers were sent in to work with the underground, and in fact they were all betrayed to the Germans through British incompetence entirely, I'm afraid. You know, the Dutch had a lot to forgive in that particular way, but they did forgive, and they were incredibly kind, not only in sheltering those who had escaped the German capture at the end of Operation Market Garden and eventually filtering them back across the Rhine bit by bit or in one large group as well. But also, obviously, in the post-war period when they did everything for the veterans, the way they welcomed them, the way that they looked after the graves and put flowers on them almost every day. It's actually one of the most sort of touching and the most poignant aspects of the whole of the Second World War, certainly from a British point of view. And, and so you talked then about the German reprisals, including this terrible hunger winter. Yes. That, yeah, I mean, how much of that was a direct response to Market Garden? I don't think that it would have taken the same course at all if it hadn't been for Market Garden. The trouble was, and the tragedy was, that um, once the advance into Germany had started... Montgomery, who was obviously desperate to advance straight on, and he was, he'd hoped to be the first at Berlin, was then ordered to head for Denmark rather than anywhere else. But he simply did not have the troops, really, to clear Western Holland. And then the thing was, again, the bad part of Market Garden was to advance up to the Rhine. And all of that area between Nijmegen and Arnhem, which was low-lying polderland, it was known as the island because it was between the two rivers, it was an absolute dead end militarily. They couldn't advance anywhere from that. Um, so basically they were sitting there and all they could do was bombard the Dutch villages on the other side and towns on the other side of the Rhine and the Germans would fire back and all the rest of it. But, I mean, there was no question of actually using artillery to occupy a place and liberate it. So, I mean, again, that was another thing for the Dutch rather to resent was um, the way that their villages and towns were in that area smashed to pieces uh, for no good, good military reason. And the only way out then for the British to advance was out eastwards into the Reichswald, into that forest to the southeast of Nijmegen. And eventually that was their way to get to Wesel. Um, and then you had Operation Varsity to cross the Rhine there, which didn't take place, of course, until the following um, early spring. Now, the real problem was that um, Wesel had actually been um, 
in some cases, and the minds of many, should have been the objective, not Arnhem. But Montgomery wanted to go north. If he'd gone to Vesel, he would have had to stick to the Americans and um, then he wouldn't have had such independence. He was hoping by going north and he would really have the whip hand in demanding everything he needed from Eisenhower. So I'm afraid, you know, vanity did play a part, and I think it's significant uh, that Prince Bernhardt, who was made commander-in-chief of all the Dutch forces, actually said, my country cannot afford another Montgomery victory, because there, to everybody's amazement in Holland, you know, Montgomery tried to pretend that Operation Market Garden had been a great success. I mean, it was, shall we say, embarrassing, to put it mildly. Just going back to the, the troops in on themselves, at what point was it decided that their cause was hopeless and that they'd have to evacuate? I think that they had realised that by sort of the third or fourth day, certainly but probably even in many cases by even the second day, that they were not able to get through to the bridge because without that bridge, you know, uh, Second Army, the 30 Corps, was not going to be able to get over the Rhine. And the trouble was that the planners had not seen to what degree there was a choke point on the western side of Arnhem where the routes came together on the side of a steep hill, which was easier for the Germans to defend. And that's why the other battalions, trying to get through to join Frostlot at the bridge, never managed to get through. So they got a pretty good idea fairly early on that they weren't going to but they thought still that 30 Corps was going to somehow come through and, if necessary, would have all the equipment ready to bridge the Rhine opposite Oosterbeek later. And um, maybe the whole thing would carry on. But they were living off hope. Um, and frankly, it was a completely false hope that such a uh, denouement would come about. And it was really only towards the end when finally on the 25th the order went out that afternoon that they were going to pull back across the Rhine that night. First Airborne was going to pull back across that night. That many of them were appalled that all of that sacrifice had been for absolutely nothing. Though most, I think, of the officers realised that they, there was no point fighting on when they were just going to die and lead to more death and destruction for the Dutch as well as themselves. Many felt, of course, guilty. They were pulling out, but the Dutch were being left with their mess, left behind with their mess and completely vulnerable to the Germans. They would have another chance later on, but, you know, what was the future going to be like for the Dutch? Over the course of Market Garden, what kind of casualties did the Allies experience? Do we have any kind of numbers for that? Yes, we do, uh, but I haven't got the figures uh, in, in, right away in my head. But, I mean, to give an idea, out of just over 10,000 men of the 1st Airborne who went in, um, only just over 2,000 came out. So that gives a pretty good idea, I think, of the casualty rate. German casualty rate was high, too. I mean, they certainly killed the uh, besiegers very effectively. I mean, what was interesting was you have um, some of the accounts, I mean, in the Pathfinders, the 21st Independent uh, Parachute Company, who were the Pathfinders for First Airborne, there were a number of German and Austrian Jews fighting there uh, who fought ferociously. They didn't take any prisoners. So, I mean, German casualties were hard to tell in some cases because, I mean, I went through them in the uh, German archives in Freiburg in some detail. And you're, you're pretty certain that actually the Germans are not giving the full sums because uh, these are being reported back to Führer headquarters and uh, they didn't like the idea of admitting that actually um, such losses had been inflicted on them. But no, of course, for them, it was a triumph in the end. And of course, for the SS, it was a reason to brag uh, and to say, you know, it shows that Germany is not finished, that we can still turn the war around and all the rest of it. Uh, General Student called it the last German victory. And in fact, 
I think Arnhem was the last German victory. You've talked before about how Montgomery tried to present this as actually a victory, but ultimately, did did people in you know, Britain and America, did they realise this had been a disaster? And, and how was it communicated to the public? It was never presented as a disaster to the public because, again, that thing, and Churchill, when he was talking to the House of Commons on the subject, knew perfectly well that he was facing a major problem that he had to acknowledge in a way that, of course, hadn't succeeded. But he can't say it was a disaster, and he can't say that it was all a waste of time and um, futile losses. So he used the great phrase, not in vain, not in vain, uh, which actually was sort of meaningless in the circumstances, because, frankly, it was in vain. It hadn't really improved our military position, even by getting as far as the Rhine, even though we'd captured this chunk of Dutch territory. And um, so it had to be presented really as a success or a partial success at any rate, uh, even though it wasn't. And Browning, everybody who was involved in the cover-up, basically, because it was a cover-up, let's face it, were unanimous in their thing of... uh, uh, Between themselves, though, there was a lot of bickering going on. You know, General Horrocks tried to claim that the First Airborne had fought a a bad battle and uh, said, therefore, it was their fault. Uh, You can imagine the paratrooper airborne side felt that they'd been let down by 30 Corps because they hadn't advanced quickly enough. I mean, there there was quite a bit of bitterness. I mean, 40 years on... Uh, by then, Major General John Frost stood on the bridge uh, by Arnhem or whatever and shook his fist towards Nijmegen, saying, and you bloody well call that fighting? As if addressing the 30 Corps. And on the other hand, you know, there was a lot of resentment in the rest of the British Army against airborne um, formations and against special operations and so forth. You know, the bulk of the British Army basically did not like what they regarded as funny, i.e. as sort of uh, unusual operations or uh, special operations or even airborne operations. And so there was quite a lot of bad feeling uh, left within the British Army. On the other hand, there was huge admiration for those who had fought at Arnhem for their sort of sheer guts and determination in the way that they had held out against all odds. And do you think nowadays, do you think the public have an accurate understanding of what happened there or has it become too shrouded in myth, particularly obviously with the film version and things like that? I think it has become shrouded in myth too much. I think that there have been a lot... I mean, so many myths about, you know, A, that there were two SS panzer divisions there as if they were hadn't been smashed. I mean, they were, they were the equivalent, basically. There were hardly a full regiment between them in terms of size. I mean, they were, they were about a sort of, you know, only about an eighth of the size of which they really should be. And as I said, they only had three tanks between them. So from that point of view, there's been a huge myth in that particular sort of direction. There's been another myth in the other direction about sort of the German tanks coming in and being brought in from Germany. And it was the rapidity of the and the ruthlessness of the German German reaction, which was so effective. But of course, there's been other myths too about what the operation achieved. Again, partly this view that one mustn't belittle it in any way or anything like that. And I think that um, I don't think that there's been enough acceptance of the way that the Dutch suffered as a result of the failure, the disastrous failure uh, of the whole operation. I mean, it's one of the best examples, I think, in military history of what should not be done when planning an operation, when it's based on false assumptions, bad intelligence, bad communications, basically a total lack of liaison between the airborne side 
and the airside who were delivering them. And the idea of Montgomery that he could impose his plan on the air and that they would do what he was going to tell them was ludicrous and incredibly dangerous and also arrogant because he knew or should have known that a policy decision had been made that it was the airside, the RAF and the American Air Force who were going to decide the operational details and um, not the army side. So all of those things were wrong, and I think that all of those things tend to obscure the idea that, you know, if only this had gone right or if any of this hadn't gone wrong in that particular way, uh, then it would have been a huge success. It was never, never, never going to work. That was Anthony Beaver. Arnhem, The Battle for the Bridges, 1944, was published today, the 17th of May, in both the UK and the US by Viking. And you can also read a piece by Anthony about Arnhem in the June issue of BBC History magazine, which has just gone on sale with the Black Death on the cover. Look out for it in all good retailers and in digital now. Just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets are still available for our day event on the Bayer Tapestry which takes place in Oxford next month and features a number of experts delivering talks on the iconic piece of English and French history. Visit historyextra.com forward slash events for more details and to book tickets. OK, well, we've come to the end of today's episode, but we will be returning on Monday for more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 